Welcome to KnowledgeShare with Dr. Dave, streamed on grokshare.com and broadcasted on iTunes and Google Play. You are listening to episode number 50, featuring Tammy Hawkins, a managing director at Experis Manpower Group. The topic is the story of getting there. Tammy Hawkins is an executive at Experis and creates a bridge between managers seeking talented professionals to satisfy a role and technical professionals seeking an opportunity. The story of getting there begins with a business need and Tammy's unique skill of connecting managers and candidates to establish a successful relationship. Tammy said, trust but verify, take the high road, assume best intentions, execute with excellence, and have an abundance mentality. I use these as my guidelines as a standard way to conduct business, said Tammy. I sat down with Tammy to learn more about her inspiration, challenges, discovery, and resilience. This interview is extracted from the Elastic Minds What Are You Thinking book. The book is available on Amazon.com as a Kindle or print. So good morning, Tammy Hawkins. How are you today? I'm great, Dave. How about you? Fabulous. So we have a few themes and questions. So we'll begin with innovation. What were some of your experiences that inspired you to start this business or work in this field? So, I mean, to go back to to where I entered the industry or the field of finding people jobs, it really kind of, it dates back to when I was in the military because although I didn't find people jobs in the military, my role within the organization, the division that I um, was in was always within, um, if you relate it to civilian world and HR department. And so we would have soldiers coming in to the division and myself and folks on my team were the individuals who would determine from a skill set perspective where they should go, how they could best fit, and how they could contribute to the overall division. So that was really my first, you know, purview into looking at skill sets, understanding people's talents, looking at an organization, how could those people best benefit the organization, and how can they best fit, you know, from a career perspective, is that a good place for them? Transitioning out of the military, um, one of my first jobs, you know, I bounced around a little bit, like most soldiers do, I ended up at a children's hospital. And that was my first, um, you know, experience with true staffing. And so it was Arkansas Children's Hospital. And my role was to staff the RNs, the LPNs and the CNAs 24 by seven. They had a burn unit, they had it in ICU, a PICU emergency room. And it was so important to not only find folks to fit slots, we were doing two-hour shift, four-hour shifts, three-hour shifts, one-hour shift, just to get the right talent in the door. And it's so important not only to get that coverage, but it's the right coverage because a burn, you know, a burn nurse might not be able to, to go and work. That would almost be a waste of talent to put that person on gen- a general ward because of their skill set. So that really opened up the world to me more so about how important it is from a human capital perspective to have the right people in the right chairs and to be in an industry where I get to help my clients, you know, you know, procure that talent and to help individuals with their career paths and help them understand maybe where they fit, not only from a career path, but what kind of industries, what kind of jobs to get them there. Um, has really like put me in the position that I am, which has been in the staffing arena for 25 plus years. 
So an ICU, PICU? A uh, pediatric in- intensive care unit, ne- neonatal intensive care unit. So all, all the specialties within critical care. Excellent. On to challenges. So describe significant challenges experienced in your professional journey. What a great question. So if we move you know, on to what I've done for 25 plus years, you know, I'm in the technology industry and for the most part, it is a male dominated industry, even in the staffing world. Um, you know, from an educational perspective, women in, you know, STEM initiatives and STEM, you know, you know, curriculum and, you know, education, you know, there's a small portion of women who've went into that. Same thing kind of with staffing, you know, it's very male dominated. So from just a challenge perspective of, you know, not looking and being like the majority of the people in your industry from a competition perspective, that's a little bit different. Um, Our industry is uh, like any other industry. There's a group of um, cultural uh, indicators that make you more or less successful, um, such as, you know, going out and playing golf with the guys or going out and drinking with the guys and doing, and I'm not saying that women don't do that. I'm saying that I don't do that in my career. And so that's a challenge because I, I've had to accommodate, I've had to acclimate to an industry that in order to be more successful, there are certain things you can do to put yourself in that position. And I've made a, a, a decision not to do those things. So from a challenge perspective, I've had to create different ways to connect with people to make myself and my company and my team and our services more relevant um, in a way without that social aspect. So that that's one way that, you know, there's been challenges with what I do. So how, th- how did those experiences shape your thinking? My thinking had to evolve. So it definitely shaped my thinking because in, in the roles that I've had, either as an individual contributor, which would be um, selling into a market and acquiring clients for my company and for our recruiting team to impact, um, to managing teams, managing recruiters, managing a market, creating sales strategies. It, it permeates all of that, that's those areas, because I've had to figure out if I'm not going to partake of, and I don't expect my teams to partake of this, you know, common way of doing business and common way of securing business and creating relationships, what can we put in place or how can I help my teams and organization put in place something that's different, that's effective? So from that perspective, it has shaped, you know, I I look at, you know, more of I want a business relationship with folks, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a personal business relationship with folks. Um, I have a lot of, you know, peers and individuals who open up their homes to all of their clients and they do all of these wonderful, great things. And I've made a decision not to do it. So what we've done on the flip side is open up our branch to organizations, open up the team to opportunities to help teach, counsel, guide, create more opportunities for folks in their career search. So I think what it did is it made me look at the, what's the alternative to this social um, ecosystem that folks leverage in my industry and what can I put in the place? And then in place of that, we're more, you know, not obviously customer focused and candidate focused, but in our, in the little ways I encourage my team and I do myself on how can we help individuals find jobs, even if we don't have jobs for them, 
what can we do with our expertise and what we've done in the marketplace to help guide them? You know, I have, on all the teams that I've had, I've had certain criteria for them to hit, whether they hit it or not. I put it in front of them, which is, Every week you need to help X number of people that are, that's not in your portfolio that we don't have a job for. What can you do to help them? So that's really from a creative and innovative side, you know, that's really what people think that we should do regardless, but that's not what happens in staffing companies because we're here to make money. So guiding my organizations and teams to take what we have to offer and help impact people where we're not going to make money has been a way that's, you know, crafted my thinking about what we should be doing. Great. Discovery is the next theme. So what techniques or practices did you apply to amplify opportunities or dampen adverse results? Wow. Um, so I'm not sure if techniques is, is, the, is what I'm going to share with you. It's probably just more of a philosophy or a way of thinking. And, you know, in order to leverage um, our reach in the market and to be corporate citizens or be good teammates or be a, a good part, a, a relevant part and an impactful part of our fabric of our company, I really have created these ways of thinking and I don't, didn't create them. I brought to the table ways of thinking to myself and my team, which has a lot to do with you know, having an abundance mentality, you know, we, yes, we compete, it's a very competitive industry, but we don't have to compete internally. You know, a lot of ways that our teams are ran in competitors, and even with them in my own company, is you have a set of recruiters who do the heavy lifting in our industry, finding talent, competing against the person sitting beside them. So I really have eliminated that thinking, and that opens up the door for us to be more successful in that person, to be more successful. You know, things like, you know, we need to trust, you know, our clients, our candidates, our internal folks, our teammates. We need to trust them, but we also need to verify because we are here to do something specific. We are we are paid a salary to go and create, you know, revenue streams for our client, for, for our company. So, you know, that trust but verify thing, it's like to be a good business person and for and everybody on the teams that I've ran, they're business people, they run their desk. So creating that type of environment where that's okay that I trusted you, but I did go verify that. And there's that's not a personal thing against, you know, how we're working together. So, you know, I think that amplifies opportunities within our company, because there's more business to be had, we're touching more opportunities, we're helping more people. Um, but it also helps, you know, create a, a success for our clients, because with that type of mentality, we can bring more more folks to the table for them, because we're not competing internally. It's really about our recruiting team's best relationships and understanding of the talent in the market and bringing that forward regardless. Um, so that's just a couple of examples. How about dampen adverse results? Dampen adverse results. So what techniques or practices? Yeah. So what I can relate to that is a st structures that I've e either I've enhanced within companies or put in place myself of checks and balances about how we work within a customer. You know, I, I'm going to give you, you know, to damp to dampen negative results or adverse results. So I'll give you an example of something that our company might have in place, but how do you make sure that it's done? So 
every customer that we engage with, regardless of what company or I've ever been with, is we sign a contract. And we sign a contract which says how we will work with them in particular. It goes back and forth between legal teams. And it, it is a document we need to uphold. Quite often in the heat of the business and the heat of finding people, you know, those terms and conditions are forgotten and they can definitely be detrimental either to um, a candidate that we place that we don't process correctly, um, who might end up losing a job because we don't, you know, adhere to the terms of the contract for people placement, to a client who might have really a lot of compliancy. They might be in the finance sector and maybe there's some security things that we should have done to place somebody and we, we didn't do them. And then our company losing business. So from that perspective, you know, what I do to ensure that those we are in compliance with our contracts, which could be adverse if we're not, is, you know, I not only understand all of our contracts that come in the door, but our business development person who really is attached to that, they have to understand it. And we have regular sessions where we're educating our recruiting team on that. We also have created um, a portal, you know, a, a repository on Google Docs, which is not our company didn't mandate this, where every client that we touch, we have every single thing that if you're going to touch their business, you need to understand and you need to comply with. In addition to that, once we get that in place with our back office, there's um, a process that's created, which I'm with every single client we bring on board that I'm intimate with that has all the checks and balances. So everything within that contract from when we ink, we agree from our, our legality perspective to, to when we ink it, to when we get it in play, to when we place people, it is held up throughout the whole, the whole, you know, process stream. So that's a way, you know, we're running a business. So you don't want to place, you know, 20 people on a customer and then find out that we weren't doing one thing on a background check that put our customer in jeopardy, which puts those consultants in jeopardy because now they're not qualified for the job. So that's an example of, you know, making sure that there's not a, you know, how do we dampen adverse effects? Excellent. So, what creative or innovative ideas allowed you to achieve your organization's or personal goals? So, I'm going to give you an example of a um, creative, innovative idea that was actually personal and business, you know, uh, because quite like many things in our life, they kind of intertwine. Um, so, back during our our recession in the company in, in this market hit us about 2007 because we had all of the mortgage companies in Orange County in LA, um, 2007, 2008, 2009. Um, the whole purpose for what we did um, as a staffing organization basically just ended because, you know, with all the massive layoffs and no jobs to be had and more folks on the market than was ever before, I had to, with my team, we really had to come up with the way to stay relevant and keep our jobs in reality um, and still have a market in Orange County, which is what I ran at that time when things started picking up. So you have to create a way that you kind of just hold tight for however long that you need to and really downsize to the point where you can still um, pay the bills, but obviously you're not making money. But the other, the flip side of that was with all the people in IT who were impacted and no longer had jobs, uh, which a lot of them had not been, you know, on the job market for 10 plus years. I mean, these were, for the most part, a lot of long-term employees with companies who didn't understand the contracting world, who had not had a reason to put together a resume for a long time. The new ways of looking for jobs were not, you know, obvious to them. So what we decided to do is um, 
you know, take, we were in a building, which was for the most part empty because of all the layoffs and businesses folding. Um, we, I went to the property management and said, you know, there's a huge suite on the top floor. Can we have it, you know, once a month to, to bring in people and just do workshop sessions. They're like, sure, why not? There was no reason not to do that. So, you know, once a month, my team would, and I would take, you know, our chairs up, up to that floor and we would set up, you know, uh, a slide and a projector and, and a way to kind of show people how to do certain things. And then we would buy snacks and we would invite in certain skill sets, basically, you know, one time it might be project management, project management professionals, then it might be business analysts and it might be quality assurance people. And basically we just went out to the community and brought folks in and, and, and did a few things. We taught them how to use LinkedIn at that time. A lot of people were not on LinkedIn to look for careers. They, they had not they didn't need to be. We did them a session on LinkedIn. We did a session on networking organizations and why even if you have a job, you should be doing that and understanding that most of the people didn't have a job. So how can they go in and add value when maybe their main purpose for joining might be to find a job, but what should else should they be doing for themselves? Um, how to create a resume that was relevant, you know, how to use job boards, which you really should job boards to me are Intel, you know, places to gather Intel, not to send a resume because that, that doesn't work anymore, but there's still a way to use them. Um, how to really build out a targeted job search about you and what you can bring to the table. Because at that time it wasn't about finding great paying jobs. It was about finding a job, you know, that best fit a company that had a need, whether it was at the compensation level that you really wanted or not, so that you could be employed. And so how do you do that with the skills that you have? And how do you adjust your thinking? So from a personal perspective, that gave me an opportunity to meet just a lot of people that I would have never met otherwise, and we could add some value. It's a, you know, that you know, brought a lot of personal gratification. So, you know, it helped retain myself and my small team. We still had a footprint in our marketplace for our company. But when jobs started picking up, not through us, because companies weren't coming to us to for people placement. They didn't need to. There were plenty of people on the market. Um, it helped those individuals who might not have had the network at the time of the recession because they weren't networking. It helped build that out for them, a relevant resume, you know, an adjustment in their thinking about what they really needed. Like how much money do you really need? Because that's what you need to go get, not this inflated or it's not even inflated, but what you are accustomed to. Um, so I felt like from myself and my team, that was a, a huge personal uplift that, yeah, we weren't making money, but and maybe it might have turned it, it started out as a little bit selfishness because we got to be relevant. But what it turned out to be was a way to not only help our organization stay in a marketplace, add value, but as these individuals went out and started securing jobs, that's really how I built the majority of my network here. I'm not from here. So, you know, how do you get with the short amount of time possible? How do you connect with as many people as you can and be, you know, a part of their ecosystem and, and relevant to them? So that's an example of creativity and innovation born out of must. Great. On to the theme of resilience. Imagine that you are a fingernail away from achieving your dream and you ran out of resources. What would you do? So I'm not sure you ever run out of resources. So um, because a resource can be many different things. So what I would do, I would take counsel with if it was a professional objective or goal that I was just in reach of, 
I would call in the many peers that I've worked with internally to my current company and externally that I've worked with over the years who I admire. They've been successful. They're, they, they're probably even better than I've ever going to be in this industry because of what they've been able to do. Um, I would call on them first and get some trusted advice from people who would have my best interest at heart, that would want to see me succeed and would take the time to hear what I'm trying to do and to think about it and give me good advice or maybe even if they don't come up with anything, they would be helping me talk through other, you know, how can we get there? So I think that would be number one. I would call on um, the business relationships and personal relationships that I have to who would want to see me succeed to help me figure out what could be the next step because you're never out of resources. You, you just you hit a wall and you have to figure out how to scale it, get around it, whatever you need to do, because it's, uh, there's plenty of walls for people and they still succeed. Um, and how do they do that? They refuse to believe that that wall is immovable. So I think, you know, in reality, that would be my first go-to. And that's even my first go-to when things are going well. I still go to those people um, and share maybe what's going on and seeing if I can help them, you know, with things that we're, that I might be doing with my team or my personal life or, or anything like that. Great. Describe a time when you had to demonstrate courage and tenacity in the face of obstacles. Yeah, I'm not sure we all think of ourselves that way, right? I don't know very many people who contemplate, you know, this is when I was courageous or this is when I've done that. Um, you know, that's just, you know, I, I don't want to go back to the previous example. It's, it's probably the easy, easiest example of... Um, courage and ten tenacity, you know, when you have a three-year recession, how do you survive that and help other people survive it? Um, you know, I guess I can just go to maybe a, a personal story. You know, I grew up with, um, you know, you don't know you don't have things when you grow up because people around you are just like you for the most part. But I grew up in, um, you know, in a very, you know, in West Virginia, there was nobody around us. We grew our own food and we canned our vegetables and we, um, so, you know, we had farms and we, you know, so everything was from the ground and my dad worked and my mom, you know, um, didn't graduate high school because she, and she stayed home and took care of us four kids. And so if you think about the way I grew up and then if you layer in the typical things that I think in, in families that folks have, um, you know, alcoholism and, you know, verbal abuse and just, just stuff like that, that you kind of grow up in. I think the biggest thing that I did was, um, very early on come to the realization that that bubble that I lived in, there was a lot of things within that bubble that wasn't accurate or truthful, that just because somebody is a different color does not mean that they're not a person. Um, just because somebody might live a different way does not mean that the way that they're living is wrong. And I, I, when I was um, 17, I made a decision to leave home. I, I was actually the, I joined the military. I was, you know, very young. I was the first sibling that left. I was the youngest. And even before that, at, at 14, I moved out of our home and I moved in with um, a family and I took care of their children. And I think if I'm looking back, that first um, way of, 
you know, earning a living. I mean, I would get on the school bus and give my siblings money for, for lunch and for stuff like that. Cause I was making money and it's not that my parents were bad people. They weren't bad people. That was just how we grew up. Um, but I think if I look back, I think that probably took a lot of courage because everybody within my, um, family and extended family, um, thought a certain way about people, thought a certain way about religion, just thought the way we lived was all the same and nobody really would break out of that mold. And I think that, you know, looking back, I think that probably took courage at the time. I wasn't thinking courage at the time. I was thinking, I don't feel good hearing what people say and looking at the actions of, even though they're my family, um, but, you know, at 14, I really made a conscious decision was this is not how I'm going to live. And you don't think that way at the time. You just you're kind of like surviving it like this doesn't feel good. I'm going to make it feel differently. Um, and so I, I guess, you know, moving out at 14 and then a step further, joining the military to get very far away from my family. Um, hindsight, that probably took a lot of courage. You know, I'm really enjoying this story. I really enjoyed this story. Um because you are an elastic mind and innovative, creative. I've always admired the work that you've done. And so just thank you graciously for sharing back with our audience. And you know, anything else you would like to offer before we come to an end? No, well, I mean, thank you for asking me to, to be interviewed. I mean, I, I think most of most people don't think of themselves as interesting people. I mean, I just think in the day-to-day, -day, we all just run around and we do what we need to do. And, um, you know, but what I would say is, you know, it takes, it, it, we're all individual and we're all unique. And I think if, if all of us could kind of do what you do, Dave, which is let's look at individuality for what it is. And everybody has something to offer. I think that we would, we would have just a, a much better, not, I don't want to say society, but you know, probably that, but I think people would have a lot more, um, good things to talk about and to look for in other people. So I appreciate you inviting me to do this. Well, thank you. I'll talk to you soon, I'm sure. Okay, thanks, Dave. We would like to thank our sponsor, Nalshare, for the continued support for this podcast. Visit nalshare.org to achieve your awesomeness through agile coaching and training, digital transformation strategy, agile organization development, lean business startup, and diversity and inclusion training. Thank you, Agile Alliance, for the Meta Pro account sponsorship. Learn more about Agile Alliance at www.agilealliance.org. We support lean thinking and agile life skills education through the Five Saturdays program. Visit www.fivesaturdays.org to donate your time, money, and knowledge. Check out Dr. Dave's latest book, Elastic Minds, What Are You Thinking?, on Amazon.com. You will also find his book, Transforming Your Leadership Character, The Lean Thinking and Agility Way, on Amazon.com. Look for the Null Share with Dr. Day podcast on iTunes and Google Play. The Null Share with Dr. Day podcast is streamed on GrokShare.com. If you have questions for Dr. Dave, reach out on Twitter at Dr. Cornelius Info or at Nalshare. This podcast is produced by Dr. Dave Cornelius. Copyright 2018, Nalshare. Share.